Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Aesthetic Insider Radio. This is your host, Angela O'Mara. Rhinoplasty has become one of the most popular forms of facial plastic surgery and is performed on patients of all ages. Um, some patients have rhinoplasty to correct a deformity in the nose, while others have it for purely cosmetic surgery procedures, and others have rhinoplasty for, um, to correct breathing issues. Today we have world-renowned leading rhinoplasty expert and facial plastic surgeon, Dr. J. David Holcomb of Holcomb Creighton Plastic Surgery, located in Sarasota, Florida. And we're going to discuss the latest trends in rhinoplasty and what has changed over the years in terms of patient expectations and patient satisfaction. Dr. Holcomb, welcome to Aesthetic Insider Radio. Hello, Angela. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, before we get, you know, going into the intricacies of, of rhinoplasty, which I understand is a very delicate and uh, somewhat complex procedure, um, I would like to learn a little bit more about you and your background and, you know, how rhinoplasty, you know, has become kind of such a, a big item within your practice. <clears throat> Thanks, Angela. So, I did my uh, initial training, my uh, internship in general surgery at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City, and <clears throat> stayed on there to do uh, my head and neck surgery training also in the head and neck surgery department. Uh, after that, I did a fellowship in advanced facial plastic and reconstructive surgery uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. So uh, I finished that in uh, 2000. I've been in Sarasota ever since, and uh, now we've expanded into Tampa. But rhinoplasty is, uh, you know, one of the uh, more challenging operations that plastic surgeons undertake, and and uh, and one that uh, can certainly deliver uh, great amounts of satisfaction to both patient and surgeon. You know, when the outcomes uh, uh, go the way that we uh, expect them to. You know, and you know, we do understand. I do understand anyway. With with rhinoplasty is is you know sometimes you know as mentioned it is more functional breathing issues. Other times, it's um, just purely cosmetic, uh, the size and shape of the nose. Um, how would you explain, you know, with your background and training, you know, and obviously, you know, you have become an expert at both aspects of rhinoplasty. Um, do you feel that sets you apart from, you know, perhaps all the physicians that, that you know, um, that perform facial plastic surgery or other procedures, but how do you feel it sets you apart? Yes, and that's a good question because there are substantial differences in training that, you know, various plastic surgeons that kind of land, you know, <clears throat> in the community doing, you know, cosmetic surgery procedures. Uh, so head and neck surgeons are the ones who um, become experts in management of the nasal airway, you know, before, you know, even ever learning the cosmetic part of uh, nasal surgery, the rhinoplasty, cosmetic rhinoplasty part. So, you know, learning how to manage the septum, to straighten the septum, to deal with septal spurs and, you know, uh, holes in the septum and things like that, as well as how to manage the turbinates, which are some little small, uh, some, some bony structures in the nose that are covered with some soft tissue that can expand and contract. And beyond that, then there's also a very common issue that we address, which is called nasal vestibular stenosis, where uh, the side walls of the nose will uh, oftentimes uh, be too weak to 
offset the negative uh, pressure that is generated when we breathe air through the nose. So the sidewall of the nose can then collapse inward, uh, rendering the nasal airway uh, sort of functionally uh, uh, unsatisfactory. Uh, so some patients will come in uh, having said, you know, I really can't breathe at all when I sleep, and so I use a breathe right strip. So that's right away um, uh, an indication that there may be something going on with the nasal valve and the structural support of the sidewall of the nose. So these are, you know, uh, procedures that uh, require a bit more knowledge and expertise to manage beyond just, you know, doing little adjustments to the nasal tip uh, or the height of the nose and, you know, uh, moving the, uh, the the nasal bones in, and in fact, cosmetic surgery of the nose, um, if it's uh, the, depending on the way it is done, can actually make the nasal airway worse. So my argument would always be that if you're going to have cosmetic surgery in the nose, you really want somebody who's an expert also in management of the airway, so that they can, at the very minimum, maintain you know your functional nasal airway at the same time as improving the cosmetic you know uh, and beauty aspects of the nose. So would you characterize rhinoplasty as being one of the more like, difficult and complex surgeries you perform over other you know face and body procedures? I would say so. I think most plastic surgeons would acknowledge that rhinoplasty may be the most challenging of operations that we undertake because it involves manipulating uh, bone, uh, cartilage, skin, and uh, stabilizing you know these structures uh, in, in a way that helps the nose in terms of the appearance, but also uh, ideally maintains uh, normal uh, functional breathing of the nose. No, you know, I have, you know, heard that there are um, <clears throat> excuse me, terms such as an open rhinoplasty versus a closed rhinoplasty. And then, of course, in media and on television in more recent years, we're seeing things like the non-surgical rhinoplasty. So can, you, can we chat about those for a little bit, you know, kind of what the difference is in open versus closed and then more less invasive for... Yeah, like I said, the trends in the non-surgical aspects. Um, sure. Can you explain kind of how you do your procedure? Yes. So non-surgical rhinoplasty typically would involve injecting uh, a filler material such as uh, radius or radius plus. It's calcium hydroxylapatite. Um, and so uh, if the nose has just a little bit of a slight bump, but maybe uh, above that is a little deficient, you can sort of fill in the area above the bump where it's a little deficient and, you know, end up with a straighter uh, dorsum, a, you know, a straighter profile. Uh, you know, that can work. Uh, and for some patients, that is a good solution. But for a, a much larger nose, that's just going to make the nose seem that much larger and really isn't a a good option uh, in that situation. So this is not something for most patients coming in wanting a cosmetic improvement with their of their nose. A few patients here and there, sure, but that's not sort of the the initial consideration usually. Um, with in terms of the approach to rhinoplasty, you know we have to be able to visualize the the structures underneath the skin, and there's two ways to do that. As you as you mentioned, there's what's called a closed rhinoplasty and an open rhinoplasty. Really, the difference between the two is um, typically a small little stair step or inverted triangle incision on the columella skin, which is the skin you know beneath the nasal tip that goes down uh, to the upper lip so 
the incisions are quite small, you know, each element of that little inverted triangle, uh, you know, very small, sort of three, four millimeters. So the human eye won't tend to see that once it's all healed, and it's really kind of a non-issue in terms of, you know, appearance and healing for the most part. So I like to be able to really very well visualize the structures that I'm, you know, manipulating and changing. And so I really prefer the open rhinoplasty technique. But there are situations where maybe just a small amount of work needs to be done on the dorsum, um, and you know very little tip work, and so in that case, a closed rhinoplasty, I will do that sometimes as well. Okay, okay. You know when you know again looking at before and after pictures of, of patients, and and every patient is different, and, and especially on the you know if it's nose reshaping, nose resizing, obviously you know some noses are much larger than others. Um, but but I think you know I I would un, I would imagine that a rhinoplasty whether it's cosmetic or breathing issues is quite a life changing procedure. Would you agree? It is. Um, you know, patients derive a, a great deal of um, satisfaction and uh, uh, self. Uh, improvement uh, from, you know, that procedure. It's interesting, though, because sometimes patients with significant changes, you know, in the before and after picture that, you know, you and I would readily say, gee, that's amazing, that's a big change. If the patient, you know, uh, maybe changes their hair color, gets a different haircut, uh, changes their wardrobe, then interacting with people who really know them very well, I mean, close friends even sometimes won't really pick up on the fact that they might have had, you know, a rhinoplasty operation. So, you know, what seems to be a substantial change to to uh, readily readily apparent, substantial change to most of us, you know, sometimes isn't really perceived as such by, um, you know, close acquaintances even. That's great. That's great. And that is, to me, anyway, is the, the secret to great cosmetic plastic surgery is it is it should be the best kept secret and you don't want people looking at you saying oh my goodness you look so different than you did last week you know it's like no you just look refreshed you look natural you look young, more youthful you know i think that's more the response that patients want versus you look like a different version of yourself um, would you agree there no, I would agree. And, you know, the the nose and sometimes the chin, which we haven't talked about yet, and the neck really help to uh, provide that sort of ideal harmony of the facial structures, especially on that side view. So, you know, if the chin is a little short and the nose is a little bit larger, the chin uh, will seem a little that, that much shorter and the nose will seem that much larger. If you take down the nose just a little bit, the chin will seem more, you know, within range. And if, conversely, if you just add a little bit of length to the chin, perhaps with the chin implant, then the nose won't seem, you know, quite as large. So very often we will end up doing uh, procedures on the nose as well as chin lengthening and possibly neck contouring to, you know, uh, improve that sort of facial uh, harmony from that side view. Okay, so so then let me just um, ask you if you can elaborate a little more on this. And so sometimes, as you mentioned, with a rhinoplasty, um, the chin may be, I guess, what we would call weak, um, but just l less defined or a little small. Um, so, you, so if you were to insert a small chin implant, then that creates greater balance and harmony to the profile as well as the, the front view of the face. Um, is that correct? 
Yeah, you don't see so much changes to the front view of the face uh, unless the pre-jowl area uh, is, you know, fairly weak. There are some implants that both add length to the chin but also add some width and fill in sort of that uh, sort of pre-jowl area. So uh, if that area is okay, then adding length to the chin, you know, you don't really see too much of a difference from the front necessarily. But it's that side view where adding that little bit of length really helps to balance the nose and makes it go from, you know, an operation where if you were really trying to balance things out, you might think you have to do so much more with the nose. Well, then if you add length to the chin, you don't have to do quite as much with the nose, which is usually better. Uh, and you get better harmony. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, you know, since this procedure doesn't necessarily address the aging face, although you did just touch on the jowl area, um, but but for the most part, we're just talking about the, the nose structure itself. Um, and I, w- I would imagine that this is, you know, obviously younger people, you know, want to have changes or have breathing issues, as do older people. What is the, the typical age of a, a patient coming in for a rhinoplasty? Well, on the younger side, really 14 is sort of the earliest point where we would typically consider, you know, rhinoplasty surgery. You know, reconstructions, you know, from a trauma or something, that was maybe a different story. But but 14 for a cosmetic rhinoplasty typically is the earliest because at that point the the nasal septum and the nose is pretty much fully developed. Um, On the the, uh, other side of the spectrum, you know, there really isn't an arbitrary cutoff. I mean, I have done, you know, nasal procedures, rhinoplasty in patients who are certainly in their, you know, early to mid-60s and even beyond that into the 70s. So it can be done. Um, you know, the concern as we get older is, you know, uh, the vascular supply of of the tissue and uh, just being wary about, you know, healing issues. But but it can certainly be done in older patients. And I live in a community where we have, you know, um, a lot of retirees. And, and so uh, sometimes I'll have a patient who, you know, they might be 63 and they've wanted to fix their nose forever and just never got around to it and said, okay, let's do it. And so mm. we do. That's great. That's great, yeah. Yeah, I guess whenever, whenever the right time is... Um, now you do mention 14, and that you know, obviously, for you know, some of our listeners, that might seem a little, a little young, um, but you do mention that by the age of 14, for the most part, in 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 most you know young people, the 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 nasal structure is fully developed. Um, you know, how do you address you know if a patient uh, with a patient at that age group? Um, I'm sure on a, from a parental point of view, it, again, it seems a little young, um, but um, how do you explain, you know, the importance of this procedure in a person that young? Um, <coughs> excuse me. So usually at, at that age, um, I would say maybe more often than not, it may be the parent that is maybe initiating the conversation and uh because they they see that uh you know their their child has some you know concerns maybe not verbalized uh as such but having concerns about appearance and you know it's a time when there's extreme pressure on 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 from peers about appearance and um so sometimes it's just it's better for everybody to sort of address some of these things earlier than later um yeah, I did have, you know, an interview with actually a young person um recently on a rhinoplasty and 
when I asked, you know, what was the kind of the motivation because she was she was, you know, fourteen years of age and and she just said, you know, really I, I realized at the age of fourteen that I have a nose like my dad, which looks great on him, but I'd much prefer a nose like my mom's, which is much smaller and more, you know, feminine looking and um and and that really, you know, was her, she said, it's really affecting my self-esteem, my self-confidence, you know, I just feel like my nose is just way too big for my face. And, um, you know, she was able to correct it and, and then honestly said, you know, it really changed my life, you know, in school I was happier, I didn't get teased as much and, you know, and so, you know, that to me is obviously the benefit, you know, with, with a, a person that young that, they know themselves, you know, you know what they need in terms of, um, you know, what's going to give them more, more confidence, more self-esteem. Yeah, and certainly some children at that age, you know, are, are already basically young adults and more mature and can verbalize, you know, those concerns as eloquently as you put it. Uh, uh, and other times not, but... Uh, uh, Parents are usually fairly perceptive and, um, you know, step in when it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's, that's good to know. And then, now, with the different procedures that we've talked about in terms of, not procedures, but the different approaches that we have talked about, especially open versus closed, um, would you, is there any difference in downtime? Or, you know, what is the typical downtime and preparation for, you know, such a delicate procedure? Well... There's not really a significant difference in downtime, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, there's some talk about maybe there's a little bit more swelling, you know, if you do the open approach where you have that little extra incision. But, you know, I, I don't think it makes really that much difference. Um, but in terms of uh, the procedure itself, so that's where uh, things come into play, such as uh, has there been a previous nasal surgery? If the patient maybe has had a septoplasty, then a lot of times the, the cartilage of the septum will be removed in the effort to straighten the septum, but then discard it. Um, uh, there is a procedure where some, but it's just almost not done, where that septal cartilage could be sort of uh, retained or banked even, sort of put in another place sort of behind the ear under the skin just in case it might be needed later, which if it's needed later is an incredibly fortuitous event for the patient's doctor to have had the forethought to do that, but usually it's not done. So if I'm faced with a patient who has had previous nasal surgery, whether it's septoplasty or prior rhinoplasties, uh, and sometimes they've had two or three um, beforehand. Um, if they don't have, if they need structural cartilage grafting to kind of rebuild the nose to correct, for example, nasal vestibular stenosis to give some, uh, to or to give some support to the tip of the nose or shape to the tip of the nose, uh, or some extra volume uh, to the dorsum or the top of the nose. If they don't have, you know, uh, sufficient septal cartilage left over that can be harvested and used, then, you know, we're faced with having to go to another site on the body uh, to find some usable cartilage. So I typically will go to the ear as, you know, the, the backup plan. And so then, of course, if we have to make an incision on one or both ears and borrow some cartilage, that adds, you know, another surgical site or surgical sites and more swelling and, you know, it's it's a there's more wound care, so it's a little bit bigger deal and a little bit more, you know, uh, recovery. But um, it doesn't really affect the overall length of the recovery from the standpoint of the rhinoplasty. Um, some doctors will use rib cartilage. I find that's rarely necessary, um, and there are certainly different sorts of, um, you know, uh, 
non-biologic materials, i.e., you know, silicone implants and things like that that can very occasionally be used. But usually we try to avoid using uh, something that's, uh, you know, a foreign body, essentially uh, something manufactured if we can, because there's, you know, increased risk for those, for complications with uh, things like that, such as infection or just the implant not sort of seeding the way we might exactly want it. Uh, you know, so there's some risk with, with uh with uh, implants. Now, with with a rhinoplasty, um, you know, obviously the nose is so, I mean, it's such an area that even if, you know, you get bumped in the nose, it hurts for weeks and it gets swollen. And, um, do you find with rhinoplasty, you know, that it's a couple of months before the complete swelling goes down or a few weeks, you know, like at, at what point after a procedure can a patient expect to say, you know, like, this is it now, it's, it's this is the way it's going to look forever. So, in the consultation process, we do uh, com- uh, simulated computer imaging for the uh, after appearance of the nose before surgery is even done. So we have a special camera system that takes multiple photos at the same time from different angles and stitches them together uh, with a complex computer. Uh, programmed so that we can manipulate the image and so we can show reducing that bump or hump on the top of the nose, narrowing the tip, lifting the tip, uh, narrowing the base, you know, what have you. So I I find that that um, exercise is really invaluable in solidifying between the patient and the doctor what the actual goals of the surgery are. And once we arrive at the simulated after image that we all agree um, is a good goal, we print that out, give a copy to the patient, keep a copy for uh, our records, and we take that copy to the actual operating room and put it up on a uh, put it up right next to where we're working, so we can uh, keep on working on the nose until we get as close to that you know after image as we think we can possibly get before we say okay we're done and put the final sutures in and put the splint on the nose. So um, I think that's you know a, an excellent way to communicate with the patient and to guide the actual decisions that are made intraoperatively during the surgery uh, to achieve the goals that are laid out. Okay. And now, is that the um, the vector 3D facial imaging um, that, you, that you're yeah, talking so we, about there? Oh, okay. Yeah, the Canfield Vector uh, imager, we have two of them. One's a handheld and one's a fixed, but um, they both work really well with their mirror imaging system. Okay, okay. You know, and that is, um, you know, interesting because I'm sure you probably get people who kind of bring in pictures of celebrities or models or, you know, other people, family members perhaps, uh, you know, I want to know if that looks like this. Um, So that would be a great way to, I guess, even see how that type of nose, you know, if if it was appropriate for their face, but how it would look before they even go under the knife. Yes, we do occasionally have patients that will bring in a picture of, you know, a celebrity and, you know, want to see if they could have a chin like that or a nose like that. And usually the answer is, you know, maybe we can get you, you know, sort of in that genre, but we can't give you, you know, said person's nose because, you know, your nose is yours and theirs is theirs and yeah, uh, the structures yeah. just aren't, you know, at the starting, at the, even at the structures usually are not sort of amenable, you know, to, you know, an exact match. So we really don't try to do that. We really prefer to, you know, use their own, you know, static 
image or a 3D image and then morph it and put those two side by side. And, okay, this is how you look now. This is how I think we can get you looking. And if this is what you want to look like, then, okay, we're done with our imaging session, and that's that's our goal. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then and then after, like, at what, what point after the procedure would you sit down with the patient with that picture so that they can do their comparison? Does that vary from patient to patient? Yeah, I think it does vary somewhat from patient to patient, but in general, it can take a number of months for the, the nose to fully settle in, you know, even as much as six months, sometimes as long as 12 months, depending on, you know, the complexity of the procedure. Sometimes if it's a, a, a revision rhinoplasty and they've had several other rhinoplasties, there's more scarring, and it can just take a while for the nose to settle settle in. Now, for, uh, you know, for pe- people listening into the show right now, you know, and who are considering rhinoplasty, what would you kind of advise them to do in terms of, you know, preparation for a procedure and then um, selecting a surgeon to help them, you know, achieve their goals? Well, I think with any uh, plastic surgery procedure, you want to feel comfortable with your surgeon and be able to have a good rapport and, you know, feel that they are listening to you and, and have your best interests at heart. And But you also have to be comfortable with the staff because they'll be doing a lot of the post-operative wound care and, uh, you know, taking your calls and, you know, running them up the line to the doctor and if, if you know, if there's something that you really do need urgently. Um, so, I mean, comfort, comfort with the physician and, you know, the staff and the facility is all very important. Um, in terms of preparation, um, you know, the main thing really for rhinoplasty surgery would be just if you're taking anything that can uh, promote bleeding, such as uh, fish oil, uh, high-dose garlic, aspirin, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, uh, vitamin E, things like that, you want to make sure that you stop those for at least 10 days and 14 is even better um, before surgery. Oh, okay, yeah. Even fish oil. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard of the other things. I didn't realize that fish oil was also included in that list of things to stop taking. Yeah, just anything that can potentially uh, thin the blood a bit and, and cause us a little bit more bleeding. The nose is an extremely vascular structure, and uh, less bleeding during surgery makes the surgery you know easier and, and usually uh, go better for the surgeon. Well, you know, we've covered a lot of areas in rhinoplasty. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to share with our readers? Um, not really. I mean, I think we covered a lot of different uh, good topics, um, from the imaging to the functional versus cosmetic parts, you know, what ages to do it, um, you know, the, the recovery process. I think we covered a good bit. You know, I think we did too. And so... For those people listening in, and you know there will be a full article um, to complement this this interview at AestheticInsider.com. But how would listeners reach you, Dr. Holcomb? Well, um, they can go to our website, which is www.sarasota-med.com or or www.tampa-med.com, and then our uh, our number is there on the website. So. Okay, great. Well, Dr. Holcomb, thank you so much for being on Aesthetic Insider. Um, You've just really given us some great input on current trends in rhinoplasty. Uh, Dr. Holcomb, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Angela. Okay, well, have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.